0: Scripture this morning is a brief one, but its setting is very crucial. It is at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is Mark 1. This is the 15th verse. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Last week, my wife put me on to a book that you may have already heard of. It was written by a nurse in palliative care, spent a lot of time with uh, people in the last stages of their life in hospice, and she wrote a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying, uh, taken from what she had heard and experienced from people over so many years, and among those Regrets were, first of all, that they regretted that they had not been true to themselves and they had rather lived the lives that other people wanted them to live. They regretted that they had worked so hard. They had regretted that they didn't spend enough time with friends. They regretted that they had not shared their feelings very often with other people. And the final regret, regret was they regretted that they did not let themselves be happier. It was interesting to me, and I started wondering, do you think Jesus had any regrets about his life? Jesus got a do-over. What would he do? Well, as a matter of fact, according to the book of Acts, Jesus got a do-over. He got some additional time. You'll remember that Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead. But according to the book of Acts, then he spent 40 days with his disciples following his resurrection before he ascended to heaven. And what did, we, and what did he do? The book of Acts is very clear. He talked to his disciples about the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus said, if I get another shot at it, I'm going to do what I did the first time around. I'm going to talk about the kingdom of God. When he got this extra 40 days, he didn't do anything different than he did the last three years of his ministry. This morning we find in the Gospel of Mark that when he started out, he talked about the kingdom of God. We go to the book of Acts and find out that after he died and and rose again, he talked about the kingdom of God. It should not surprise us the kingdom of God was Jesus' main message. talked about it more than he talked about anything else, more than he talked about love, more than he talked about faith, more than he talked about the number two topic in his, um, in his lectures, and that was uh, possessions and money. More than anything else, he talked about the kingdom of God. Think of how many parables of Jesus that we love and, and how many of them start with the kingdom of God is like or with what shall we compare the kingdom of God? He was talking about it. He was acting it. He was doing it. The kingdom of God was Jesus' favorite subject. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about life in the kingdom of God. And in, just in case I missed the point, in Matthew 6.33, Jesus then gives me this instruction. Seek first the... Kingdom of God, and then everything else in life rolls your way. But get things in the right order, and the order is the kingdom of God. When his disciples asked him, the only thing they ever asked him, as far as we know, to teach them a particular subject, they said, teach us about prayer. And so he said, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then the number one request after that is your Kingdom come. And life and death and as life past death, Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. Well, if that's so, maybe it would be helpful to think about what the kingdom of God is. There are many wonderful uh, definitions that are out there and that are available. But some of the ones that help me the most are the kingdom of God is wherever God's will and reign takes place. Wherever God's activity takes takes place wherever things are done the way that God would want them or another one I like wherever earth becomes more like heaven all of those are ways to think about the kingdom of God and please don't be thrown off occasionally in the, in well mainly in the gospel of Matthew Jesus instead of kingdom of God will say kingdom of heaven he's not talking about someplace up there or wherever that is cosmologically He's talking about the kingdom of God because, as you may know, very devout Jews, the kind who would be reading Matthew's gospel, always tried not to mention God's name, to respect God, so they would substitute names for God. So when it came to the kingdom, they'd pull out God and substitute heaven, but they meant the same thing. God's activity, God's reign, God's will. That was Jesus' main subject. But an interesting thing has happened. In the last couple centuries, Jesus' main subject, the kingdom of God, has been hijacked, kidnapped, tucked away in some closet in a church somewhere. And now for two centuries we talk about, if you died tonight, what would happen to you? Believe and be saved. And we talk about going to heaven rather than about what Jesus talked about, which was bringing heaven. We talk about something Far off in some ways, rather than the things that are right in front of us. And we make the emphasis on taking the stuff out of the pumpkin that Lindsay talked about, and we forget about the candle that goes in and shines for this world. We've taken Jesus' message, which was a message about earth, and we, swept, we switched it to a message about Heaven and the important thing for everybody is well, you know, are you are you saved so you can go somewhere? I think Jesus wanted to know are you saved so you can do something here? You don't believe me? Listen to the Lord's Prayer again. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The locus, the focus, the place of Jesus' activity is right here. On this planet, and I think Jesus knew that as people with uh, with a faith and relationship with God through Christ, that our efforts are here and there, wherever, whenever that is, takes care of itself. His message was about the kingdom of God here on Earth now. There are some other ways to think about kingdom that might make more sense to you. One of the ways that the rabbis talked about it, Jesus wasn't the first one to mention the kingdom of God. They've been commenting on it ever since Moses. But the way they talked about it was that the world was, was in chaos. It wasn't the way God intended. And God was working to bring the world back into order, what they called shalom. Peace. It doesn't mean absence of conflict. It means fullness and wholeness of everything. It means everything working exactly as God intended. Everything working just like in the Garden of Eden. That's the kingdom of God. And that's the goal is to get back to that state and then some. And when that happens, the kingdom of God has come in fullness. So the reason I think Jesus talks so much about the kingdom, just to be frank, is that the world is pretty much a mess world's pretty much not as God intended or envisioned. I think one of the best summaries um, that I've ever heard of this comes from a non-theologian. His name is John Stewart. And John Stewart, about a decade ago, uh, took his comedy act to his alma mater, William and Mary, and he gave the commencement speech. And you, you can see it on YouTube. It's pretty short and pretty funny. And what John Stewart says to the graduates there at William and Mary is this, I have a confession to make. The world is broken. And I have to tell you that, well, my generation, we broke it. Sorry." He said, "But you know if you could find a way to do something about it," he said to the graduates, then you may become the next greatest generation." And I think Stewart, being humorous is actually right. The world is broken. It's a mess. Now, where he's wrong is we didn't break it. It was broken when when we got here. We hadn't fixed it yet. But it's been broken ever since the garden. And we can see its brokenness when we see people living estranged from one another, when we see racism, poverty, injustice, war, hunger, disease. All of that is a sign that things are not going as God intended. And bringing things back as God intended, that's called the kingdom of God. Making earth more like heaven. And that was what Jesus was about. And that's what the people of God were about even before Jesus got there. Now the phrase the Jews would later use to talk about this is the phrase tikkun olam. Which means to mend up all the stuff that's been broken. To fix the fractures. Uh, uh, they, they had this metaphor that a great light came into the world at creation, and then the light shattered and went all sorts of places. And that what we're doing is picking up the light, putting it back together, and bringing light back to the world. And isn't it interesting that one of the things Jesus would say is, I am the light of the world. Taking this mess and getting it back as God intended, that's the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' favorite subject. That's what he was about. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis says about it. He said to people, of course, who had just recently experienced the Second World War in Great Britain, he said that when God comes in Jesus, it's like establishing the beachhead at Normandy. It's like D-Day. And the Allied forces, once they do that, the Allies and the Axis powers know the same thing, and that is the war's over. It's as good as as done. Now there will be carnage and there will be desperate fighting. And we have even had through the years people in this church who were there at the Battle of the Bulge. And they can tell you about it. But still. The victory's already won. These are mop up operations. And that's what C.S. Lewis said. The kingdom of God has been established when Jesus came. And he said the kingdom of God is near. It's, It's at hand. But. There's still the mop-up operations. There's still going to this lonely person here, helping this person who is sick there, helping a person who can't eat over here, putting people who are estranged back together over there. There's still all of that still to go. And that's what Jesus and his followers were to be about, the kingdom of God. I love what N.T. Wright says about it, a wonderful New Testament scholar He says that when you become a part of this kingdom of God, he says you become part of what he calls the family business. Now to talk to you about the family business, I need to take you to two places. First, let me take you to Corpus Christi, Texas in the 1970s. As I'm growing up, my dad is an obstetrician, which was a real bummer because when it came time for summer jobs, I could never really get one at his office. Um, but I didn't go that route. My mom was an educator. I didn't go that route. And I have a brother who was a psychologist before he died. And I have a younger brother who's an attorney. And I have a sister who's a school counselor and another one who teaches English. But there's no family business. We each made a choice to go different ways. That's not how it worked in Galilee. In Jesus' day, the family business was you did whatever the family did. Once you were in the family, like if your father is Zebedee and you're James and John, guess what? You're fishermen. You're not going off to school to learn something else. This is what you do. If you live in Capernaum, you're probably making large kitchen appliances or what they call them their day, millstones. That's what your family does. Maybe your family has a vineyard and everybody works in it. It's the family business. And so N.T. Wright says, if you're the son of God, you're about the father's business. And what's the family business? The family business is making earth more like heaven. So when you and I come into that family, we got a job. Our job is to make the earth more as God intended. We didn't mess it up, but we haven't fixed it yet. That's the Father's business. That's our job, to make this world more the way he intended. And I think what's happened is uh, in the first three centuries of the church, drawing on the Apostle Paul, the church had... Two real big theological doctrines, which were equal and wonderful. Uh, One was justification by faith. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you. You've been acquitted. You've been let off the hook. You're forgiven. True. The other one was, in Jesus' love, for you, you are a beloved son or daughter of God. You're a child of God. You're now part of a family. Be a part of what the family does. Those were the two great doctrines. And for centuries, though, it disappeared. The adoption was gone. And all we talked about is what terrible sinners we were and that the best that we and most and the only thing we hoped for was somehow we could be forgiven our sin and somehow we could sneak into heaven. And that and so once we've been forgiven, we kind of lay low, just like you read about that this week, those two guys that forged papers and got themselves out of prison. Yeah, they're on the run now. Uh, yeah, they're trying to stay low. That's one way of doing it. But there was a whole other doctrine just as valid and just as wonderful that said, you are a beloved child. You are son or daughter of the king. And you've got a family business to be involved in. And you're not to lay low. You are to begin to reach high and to make this world what God intended it to become. They're both important doctrines, but when we threw one out, we lost it. And for centuries, nobody talked much about being a child of God until a guy named John Wesley came about in 1739, the founder of the Methodist. And his first year, he had 16 sermons, or first year and a half, 16 sermons on adoption theology. You are a beloved son or daughter. Now go do this. And so that's the deal. Our Father is in the business of making the world right N.T. Wright calls it God's rescue operation. Put creation, put relationships, put people back in order. That's our job. That's what we're here for. We are sons and daughters, and that's what we do in our family. That's just our family business. There's not really a choice in the matter, except how we're going to do it. That's what our family does. A couple centuries ago, one religious leader commenting on why people of God have such, so little effect on the world made this observation. He said the greatest inhibition to us making a difference in the world is that we have forgotten that we are that we are children of the king. We have forgotten who we are. And then his next sentence I love. He said we are not no one. We're not no one. We have very important family connections. We have a lot of power. We have a presence. Our father's the king. And the king wants the realm put back in order. The way he intended heaven on earth. And that's where we come in. If only we'll begin to remember who we are. I think it may have been said uh, even better in 1994. President Nelson Mandela Uh, You'll remember in his inauguration address, he quotes uh, these words from a poet. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light and not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? question mark you are a child of God Your playing small does not serve the world your father's the king you've got connections you've got ability you have the spirit you have a job to do well how are we to do it well I tell you The way the Romans did it, the way the Egyptians would do it, the way the Assyrians would do it, the Babylonians would do it, the Persians would do it. All the great powers that the people of God have found themselves serving under, they would do it in a big way. They would go big or go home. They would do it all the way or not at all. But when Jesus talked about our family business and our work, he used words like mustard seed, seed growing secretly. Jesus seemed to indicate that what we do to bring God's world back in order is whatever we do, where we are, one day at a time, one act at a time, one person at a time. And wherever we help people, we have helped restore the kingdom back to what God intended. It's not a giant act. It's thousands of small acts done faithfully, day by day, where you are with what you have. John Ortberg, several years ago, helped me see the truth of this and a picture that's really hard to get out of my mind. He said, imagine if they took you into a large warehouse room and they showed you the food that you would eat for the rest of your life. Now, some of you, it would be salad and eggplant parmesan and good stuff. For others of us, it's like hamburgers and Ice cream and Twinkies and you get the picture, but you'd see it all. And one time in that room, and if you would go, I'm not going to eat that. And you'd close the door. It's overwhelming. But the fact of the matter is you will eat that. And how will you eat it? That's exactly right. One bite at a time. There's a world out there waiting for us to take it on. You are sons and daughters of the king. Get your knives and fork, go out and take a bite.